You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Julie Collins, founder and CEO, and she has a PhD, but she's a founder and CEO of Vivid Genomics, and the website is vividgenomics.com. So Julie, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so tell me, what's the premise of uh, Vivid? So our goal is to accelerate neurodegenerative disease drug development by identifying the right patients for clinical trials. So the, the background is that drug development in Alzheimer's disease is notorious for failures. And we believe that by identifying the right patients, we'll be able to help pharma companies do a better job of running their clinical trials and um, use more, uh, you know, better analysis and therefore make it more likely that their drugs will be approved. Why do you think that, uh, or why is it that, you know, Alzheimer's related uh, drug development is failing over and over and over? What do you think is the reason? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. This is a million dollar question. So there have been a lot of drugs that actually have shown a little bit of promise. And, you know, right now there's even more and more um, innovative approaches that people are taking. And so it's quite likely that these drugs do work in a subset of patients. But the, the problem is that, um, you know, if you don't have the right people with the right disease, or if they have other forms of disease, or if they don't progress, then there's a lot of other reasons why a drug can fail rather than just, you know, the drug not working. So um, there, there's definitely a trend within Alzheimer's disease to, you know, try to limit the variation within a trial. So right now, for example, they, they you know, have a, a, an age range that's, that's somewhat limited, and they, they try to um, exclude patients who might have, uh, you know, other forms of cognitive impairment. So, for example, it's pretty common in, a, in Alzheimer's trials to exclude patients that have a deficiency in vitamin B or who have vascular dementia or who recently had a stroke because they're, they're trying to identify how does this drug work in Alzheimer's patients. And so if there are you know, patients within a trial who don't have Alzheimer's or they have their, their Alzheimer's is at too late of a stage, then um, there might not be the, the chance to see the drug work. So we are um, helping to further identify variation that we know exists. So um, multiple forms of dementia, different subtypes of Alzheimer's disease, and um, even things like a huge variation in disease progression rate. So we're developing tests that can identify that variation. 
Well, so do you think that maybe at its core, Alzheimer's is not defined properly? It's defined as one condition when maybe as many? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I certainly think that we're, we're at this point where we were perhaps 30 years ago in cancer. So, um, you know, in cancer, there's now a very, you know, uh, common precision medicine approach where no one would say these days, I'm making a cancer drug for cancer patients. It's a very specific, specific targeted approach based on the pathway and the development of the disease. And yet for Alzheimer's disease, it's exactly what we say. We say we're making an Alzheimer's drug for Alzheimer's patients, but we know that there's a lot of variation. And so um, I, I absolutely think that the, the future is the same kind of precision medicine approach that we see in cancer. Is there, you know, I've seen a lot of things in, science, in, in cancer and in and, and science in general that really mystify me, such as resistance to scientific fact and political, uh, you know, disputes, which, so it, does that happen in Alzheimer's? Is there resistance by scientists to say it's not just one condition or is it just, I don't know, is it a lack of understanding? Like how long have we seemed to understand that Alzheimer's is not just one condition? Um, hmm. Can you ask that question? Is it, maybe it is one condition. I don't know. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of evidence that there is heterogeneity in the disease. So, so that's for sure. So I think, you know, what we, what we see now, or, you know, even up until five years ago, before we had um, imaging techniques that could confirm that someone actually has the, the pathology that's consistent with Alzheimer's disease, we would just say, okay, this, this collection of symptoms and the, the timing that it came on and, the, and, you know, sort of like, what does this person look like? That defines a disease. Um, and yet there's multiple ways that somebody can end up with dementia. Right. And so Alzheimer's is especially tragic in this way, because now that we do have access to imaging techniques and there are studies being run to, to identify how often um, physicians do make an incorrect diagnosis, the, the diagnosis is wrong. Something like 30 percent of the time among patients with dementia for Alzheimer's disease. And so that number is even higher at the earlier stages of disease. So it's something like um, for, you know, for clinical trials that are trying to enroll patients that are positive for this, this brain scan, um, they end up, you know, something like 40 to 60% of the patients are actually negative for, for that. So it's just a really hard condition to, to try to understand what's driving it. How many, I mean, what kind of uh, differences have you seen in how people present? How many different types of Alzheimer's would you guess there are? Um, so there's different ways to analyze that data to come up with different subgroups. So um, there's a, a new effort by the Alzheimer's Association and the National Institute of Aging um, to think of different subtypes in terms of um, different kinds of pathology. And so if you have this plus this, then this is one subtype. If you have this but not this, then it's a different kind of subtype. So there's a few different ways of, of subgrouping that. So um, that, you know, without, without declaring a defined number, all we know now is that it's very likely that it's multiple different forms. Um, the, the tests that we're starting with um, to develop are looking at things that are comorbid with Alzheimer's disease. So rather than saying, um, you know, somebody falls into this specific subtype or category at this point, we're saying that, you know, in addition to having Alzheimer's disease, regardless of the form that it is, they also have Lewy bodies, or they also have, um, you know, another condition that could mean that they don't respond well to a drug. So hmm. um, that's that's where we're starting, and then moving into uh, more defined subtypes um, as part of our roadmap. 
since there's so many failed attempts, you know, have you analyzed all the failed attempts and seen is there any anything that kind of runs together with all of them besides that they don't work? Is there anything else that um, you see manifesting that would give you a clue as to where to go? Uh, so that yeah, there are. This pharma companies have spent a lot of time doing this. So a common drug class um, that people have been pursuing are anti-amyloid drugs, um, and the, the field is kind of split on whether those are those are the right approach and that they actually will work, but they just work at a different time point, or perhaps they would work if the the drug was administered in um, you know different different doses at, at a different schedule. Um, so those yeah i mean it's it's a really really challenging disease to to try to understand and to to try to treat there's there's no question about that so um yeah we're just doing our best to help them identify other factors that we know would con conflate the results of a of a trial do you think that science really understands how alzheimer's happens or maybe the mechanism is wrong or maybe they're missing out on certain aspects of it uh yeah but that's possible i mean that's that's certainly the domain of the of the pharma companies to try to unravel that so what all right so what's your specific uh tactic or you know or strategy and how you're going to be looking at this differently or how you are looking at it differently yeah so we're we're developing genetic based tests to um identify brain characteristics that we know are um, that that exists within patients who are in clinical trials, but who might not respond in a typical way to a drug, um, based on the, the characteristics that they have in their brain. So our approach is to develop genetic tests to uh, identify those brain characteristics just from their genetic information, um, and then that gives pharma better tools to analyze and to stratify their trials with that information. Okay, so I mean, you know, can you be a little bit more specific on what kind of work you've been doing and what, you know, maybe insights you've gotten that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So we've developed four prototype tests so far. So far, so the first one is um, looking at the presence of amyloid. So for clinical trials, when patients are enrolled within a trial, it's, it's pretty standard now to confirm that they have amyloid using um, amyloid imaging. The problem is that amyloid test scans are about five. Five to seven thousand dollars per patient for um, for pharma companies to run those, and when they have like forty to sixty percent failure rate, um, they would prefer to enrich for patients up front who are going to be positive for amyloid. So right now in the screening enrollment process, that's the very last thing that they do because it is so expensive and because the failure rate is so high. So we are our first test that we're commercializing for amyloid is to identify patients who are really unlikely to have amyloid early on in that screening process so that their um, pharma companies aren't, aren't having to um, run amyloid PET scans on everyone. Um, the next three tests that we've developed are for looking at um, disease progression rate. And again, at the, the trend to enroll patients at an earlier time point means that you have less information about them. So um, the best predictor of future decline is previous decline, but if you're at the earliest stage of disease, you actually don't have the benefit of that knowledge. So we can, with that test, identify who wouldn't progress over the first 18 months of a clinical trial, and that allows pharma companies to, um, you know, stratify their trials with that information and run an analysis to say, okay, well, if we had excluded people that we think wouldn't have gotten worse, would we have seen a signal from our drug, given that we have all of these people that are otherwise just muddling up the, um, the, the signal that we could see? And so then the, the, the like? third and the third. What are they involved? What are they involved in? So, yeah. So when we when we develop the tests, we're using the fact that there are already a lot of a lot of really really large um, genetic based studies 
so the, the studies, they're called genome-wide association studies, and, and basically they're taking, you know, tens of thousands of um, cases and tens of thousands of controls, but the, the you know, they're not looking at like a specific um, feature, they're just based on a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, which we know is wrong. So that, that genetic information that comes out of that is still useful, even if it's not ideal. And so we're combining that with analysis of brain samples where we do have the absolute gold truth, um, gold standard data, and then developing correlations of the genetics to those features. So that's, that's the process that we undergo to develop the test. And so it's, it's leveraging the fact that there are lots and lots of different genes that each have a small effect, but in aggregate can actually make a really large predictive um, effect on the disease. So um, that's, that's how we're developing the tests. And then when we're deploying them, when we're actually looking to understand the, the variation within a population, um, then we're running the, the sample by just taking blood and um, extracting the genetic information from blood and then running our tests against that, that genetic information. So it's the, the combination of genes that is important and then the, the weighting and combination of those genes that gives us the information. So what happens, um, you know, when people are selected for a, uh, a trial, are there any common things that happen that you say, like, muddle up the trial? Is it, is it that a, a large percentage of the people are misdiagnosed in the first place? Or is it that and a number of them don't progress, so there's something else going on? Like yeah, so the, I think in the confound trials. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So the the um the confirmation of people with Alzheimer's disease, I think that that trials are definitely doing a better job of that. So there are now amyloid PET tracers and imaging methods that um, mean that pharma companies can absolutely confirm that someone does have Alzheimer's. Um, what or at least the current definition of Alzheimer's. What becomes more challenging within the trial is exactly that that it's it's hard to know who is going to progress. Um, if people have, and, and it's like 40% of people at the earliest time point don't get worse over the first 18 months after a diagnosis. Um, and then likewise, another 40% or some, some overlapping 40% um, are also very likely to have um, an alpha-synuclein deposits, which, which are called Lewy bodies. It's the, the causal pathology in Parkinson's disease. But independent of Alzheimer's disease, that also causes dementia. So if there are patients within the clinical trial in the drug arm who, are, um, who also have a heavy burden of Lewy bodies, even if the drug is working and it's solving that person's Alzheimer's problem, you won't see it in a cognitive readout because it'll still look like they're getting worse based on the other pathology that the drug is not addressing. So being able to identify both of those those features is um, really helpful in understanding how the drug is working in the patient subset that it, it could be working in. Yeah, this is tough. Hmm. So I see in the notes there's been how many initiatives that have failed for drugs for Alzheimer's? 150. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a really bad field. It's notorious for failures. There's something like um, I, I, I used to have a slide that said 147, and then a week after that, hmm. the number was up to 148, and so now I just say it's about 150. So over the last 20 years, about 150 failures. What's uh, what, when you say failures, what does that mean? That these drugs do nothing, or do they make people worse, or do they just barely improve them? Like, what does failure mean? Yeah, failure means that it didn't hit the primary endpoint that the company and the FDA agreed to as part of the trial. So 
um, in some cases, it's drugs have failed because of toxicity issues and because it did make patients worse. Um, in some, you know, it's just they're, they will stop the trial early for futility, meaning that, um, you know, there's just not enough patients that look like they're responding. And so even if they were to run it out to the end of the trial, it doesn't look like they would see a difference. So a failure just means that it did not hit its, its clinical target and endpoint and that the drug didn't move forward. Are there uh, are there similar results in other you know parts of medicine that you can look to, or does this really stand out as as you know a gigantic monument of failure? Um, I mean, it's certainly. I think it, in terms of the chronic diseases, it is probably. I can't think of another one that would be considered a larger um, minefield. Um, yeah, I mean, there there are certainly drugs, and and there within. Sorry, so Eli Lilly has a drug. Uh, and I think what was really interesting about that story was that when the drug was in phase two, they had a pretty broad range of um, cognition scores that they were taking into the trial. And they ran the trial. And when they did the analysis, they realized that people that had started with the best cognitive scores, meaning that their disease hadn't progressed as far, that those patients actually had that there was a signal. And it was enough of a signal that it gave the company confidence to go into a phase three which is very expensive and is even more patients to enroll. So it was a huge investment to do that. And what was interesting in, in that story is that um, at each time point that they measured throughout the trial until the very, very last time point, there was a difference between the drug arm and the placebo arm. So it begs hmm. the question, you know, what, if they had selected the right group, if there actually was a group that you could identify that were the respondents, would that drug have been successful? And, you know, given that they, they did, you know, reduce the variation in the trial by starting with people who had better cognitive scores early on, um, it, it suggests that if they had been able to address that, then it, it could have led to an approved drug. How, how visible are these trials? I mean, are you able to go to the companies that ran them and say, you know, hey, I'm trying to help you guys figure this out. Can I have access to everything that happened and all the assumptions and data so I can you know, put it in a pot and boil it and see what I can figure out for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that that's one of our um, commercialization um, or go-to-market plans. So um, we're at the stage of development now where we have um, prototype tests and we've done quite a bit of development on our first test for amyloid. So the next step is to then um, work with a pharma company, and this is one of our goals for 2019, um, is to run a pilot study where we look at the data that they have collected in a clinical trial. And so they, they do have truth data for amyloid PET, and they do have truth data within the placebo arm for how did those patients progress. And so we can evaluate how well our tests would work in those, um, in those patient populations or those participant populations. And then beyond that, we can also say, um, you know, would the drug have been approved or would the signal have been different if we had um, run our tests and accounted for this other, you know, these other features that we know are important. So um, that is that is absolutely something that we could do. I think for some of the drugs that have failed for toxicity reasons, it, it might not, um, that might not work, but certainly for drugs like the one that I just mentioned as an example, um, you know, it does look like there was a signal. And so being able to figure out who were the responders is an important thing to do. Well, how cooperative are the drug companies? Do they work together? you know, on their failures? Or again, do they work with companies like yours or do they keep stuff close to the vest? Yeah, that's a really good question. So within the um, 
anti-amyloid drugs for the called base inhibitors. Um, I think that companies are starting to realize that they could understand more about that class of drugs if they work together. Um, the conversations that we've had with pharma companies, um, you know, there've been, because there have been a lot of failures, a lot of pharma companies have said, you know what, actually this is not the space for us. The risk is too high. We're not gonna do this anymore and we're pulling out. So Pfizer made that call um, and there've been several others. But for the companies that are still in, they want to know that their clinical trial will work. And so they're really interested and invested in trying to do everything they can to increase the probability that it's going to work. So um, we've had conversations with several pharma companies who are like, we have data, we can give it to you, you know, we can share it and, and see what it looks like. So um, I, I've certainly heard that it's been challenging to um, engage with pharma to get access to some of that data, but that hasn't been our um, experience early on anyways. That's good. Mm-hmm. And to, to backtrack, what, so what's your, what, what is science's understanding of how Alzheimer's happens? You know, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the biology of it? Sorry, can you repeat the question or ask it slightly differently? Oh, can, can, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, how does Alzheimer's happen? You know, what, what's happening to someone biologically that seems to cause Alzheimer's? What's the, the theory that all these. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, the, there's two basic pathological features of Alzheimer's disease. So it's the, the presence of plaques or amyloid plaques and, um, and tangles or tau tangles. So what the, the working theory is now, or that's what's mostly widely accepted, is that um, some, something triggers the accumulation of um, this amyloid protein into plaques. And there are lots of people that are walking around with you know, brains full of amyloid and they don't have cognitive issues and they don't have dementia. But what seems to be the case is that something within the accumulation of amyloid then triggers the accumulation of, of tau or these tangles. Um, and so people think that it's actually the accumulation of tau that causes the, um, the cognitive effects that um, ultimately lead to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So the anti-amyloid drugs are saying, you know, are, are going after this, like, can we clear amyloid? And some of the thinking around the failures is that, well, you know, yes, you might be able to reduce some of the amyloid, but if the, the tau is already there, then the damage is already done. And it's like, it's analogous to say, giving somebody a statin after they've already had a heart attack, right? It's a little bit late at that point. So um, that's, that's partly describes this trend to um, enrolling patients at an earlier and earlier stage and trying to um, address the disease before it's really taken off. And there's even some really interesting Oh, go ahead. Serge. What what is the structure of the amyloid? Are these do they start out, you know, as proteins and then they they literally get entangled in each other and form like a a clotted mass or like a a mass? I mean, what what physically happens? Yeah. Um so I'm I'm not a pathologist, so I'm probably not the right person to go right into the biochemistry about how how the um how it accumulates, but it seems that it's a a problem with like the, the, the protein itself is actually deemed to be protective in for some things. Um, so it's not that the, the protein itself is bad. It's just that um, something causes it to misfold in a way that starts aggregating that the brain can't clear. So does the brain, so in a healthy brain, there is beta amyloid sitting there. Is it just not in a misfolded state or is there none? Or, you know, like have we observed healthy brains and seen, you know, uh, 
somehow a progression of it, what happens in a, in a healthy person. Yeah, so we've actually looked at a lot of the, the data from the, um, a post-mortem brain cohort. So uh, we acquired a bunch of data and samples from um, brains that after autopsy, they had done histopathology and tried to look at um, you know, using very good and well-established techniques and, and methods um, to understand like what do these brains look like. And the associated clinical data with a lot of the brains is that you know, there, there was no cognitive issue and um, the patient didn't have a diagnosis of anything that was uh, dementia related, um, but they still had the presence of amyloid. So it's not that the, the presence of amyloid itself is a bad thing. And, and um, you know, it's, it's more that there could be some um, trigger that, that seems possibly to be related to inflammation. So um, something, there's been some stuff in the news lately about uh, maybe gingivitis causes Alzheimer's disease or, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of evidence that um, having some sort of traumatic brain injury or, or concussions um, can also increase someone's risk. And so the, what the data suggests is that that's related to inflammation and that the inflammation may lead to an increase in um, uh, amyloid deposits. What about inflammation from diet? Uh, do these trials control for what the, uh, the people, you know, the cohort eats? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's, I, you know, it's one of the, the just big challenges in trials in general is that there's just differences in people, right? There's differences in how much they sleep. There's differences in how much exercise they get. There's differences in how they eat and who they talk to on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, some of these things are, are pretty challenging to, um, to control for in a trial. Yeah. Cause you know, that could confound things too. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So what, um, what do you see as the near-term future result of, of your efforts? Yeah, so we have um, done a lot of development work on uh, on the amyloid assay, and we have a bunch of collaborations that we've um, set up and, that, and further that we're, um, even more that we're setting up to acquire additional uh, brain samples and data so that we can um, both develop new tests that are important in um, understanding clinical trial variation um, but then it also gives us an opportunity to show how our tests are performing in um, cohorts and in data sets that we've never, ever used to train the models and to develop our tests. So that's, that's in the, our, our near-term development pipeline is to run that external validation um, and then do this pilot study with one of the pharma companies. And then that will give us data um, that we can use to really fully commercialize our first two tests by the end of the year. Um, and then we'll continue doing development on additional tests and, and launch those thereafter. Yeah, I, I apologize. I had interrupted you. You'd gone through two of the tests, but there were two more that you were going to mention. Can you just describe those briefly? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> oh, I had to cancel the first time we were supposed to do this podcast because I had laryngitis. I literally could not speak. And then as of two days oh, ago, no. I got another cold. So I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. <laughs> if you want to have a glass of water or just... You know, good for a few seconds. Yeah, I, That's fine to gather your thanks. voice. You know. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so the, the other two tests that we have are for um, the uh, Lewy bodies and uh, another pathology called um, cerebral amyloid. And Lewy bodies also independently can cause dementia and cognitive impairment. So we're, I, you know, we can identify the patients within a trial who may be, um, you know, carrying around Lewy bodies in their brain. And so that could, that could, you know, really in, in, impact how they might respond to an Alzheimer's drug, um, mm. at least in the readout. 
So it might look like they're still getting worse, even if the drug's working. Um, the, the other test for um, cerebral amyloid or CAA is um, <clears throat> really, really important in antibody trials for amyloid that are uh, trying to reduce amyloid. Because what happens is that if patients have a lot of amyloid built up in the vasculature of their brain, and suddenly the anti-amyloid drugs are just flushing this out, then it's causing the side effect called aria. So there's a subset of patients within the drug arm of these antibody amyloid drugs that um, have this, this bad effect. And so the test is to identify patients for whom that is likely to happen. Um, and that will make the drug more safe overall because it you know, could still be working very well in the subset of patients that don't have um, amyloid buildup in their, mm. in their brains, in the vasculature of their brains. You know, we were, we were talking earlier about, you know, controlling or not controlling for diet and sleep and all that stuff. I mean, you would think that with the staggering amounts of money that are spent on clinical trials that, you know, they'd be very tightly controlled. I mean, I don't know, in general, what are some of the things in a, that, that would make a good clinical trial that where they, you know, what kind of factors would they control for that would make them more likely to, you know, to be able to see some kind of result? Yeah, I I don't know that it would ever be feasible to control someone's diet. I think those are just across drug development or across um, any kind of scientific endeavor. Trying to get people to eat the same thing is almost impossible. Um, but you know, I think for things that they can control are um, like age and whether or not somebody is positive for amyloid, meaning that yes, they have Alzheimer's disease. Um, they could also control for the, the stage of disease by how much has their cognition already been impaired. So um, there's some standardized methods for um, calculating cognition. So, uh, you know, you might want to enroll people that, that fall within a narrower range, for example. Um, and so those are, those are common things that um, people have, have moved towards in the last few years, but um, certainly Pharma companies know that this other variation around Lewy bodies and um, CAA and progression rate are also important. So, um, you know, we're really, really looking forward to launching those tests and getting them out there so that we can um, help pharma companies be more successful in their trials. Okay. Well, very good. So uh, what's the best way for folks to learn more about uh, your efforts and maybe, you know, contact the, the company for collaboration? questions that would be great yeah we have um, our website is up at uh, www.vividgenomics.com um, and I'm absolutely interested in um, feedback and I want to stay connected to the community so um, I can also be reached at julie j-u-l-i-e at vividgenomics.com okay well very good well julie thanks so much for coming I really appreciate it thank you appreciate the time You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, 
cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.